Romans chapter 12. This has been one of my favorite books uh, recently, and I've been, I've been stuck in a lot of Paul's writings. Romans chapter 12. How many of you have been to Lake Bowl in Moses Lake? How many of you have been bowling? It's like one of the only things to do around here. You go bowling, you go watch a movie. And if you were to describe your experience at Lake Bowl, it would probably be the same experience that I've had. It, the feeling is very casual. It's loud in there with the sounds of bowling pins being knocked over and arcade games beeping. And you've got to yell at the person behind the counter for your shoe size because it's so loud in there. It kind of smells like old carpet in the building. And, uh, and it's a place to have fun with friends and family, isn't it? It's a casual feeling place. Now, uh, in contrast, how many of you have ever been to the tasting rooms at KB Winery? Don't worry, I'm not judging you if you drink wine. Just raise your hand if you've been in it. Nobody in here? Okay. Some people are sheepishly raising. I've been to the winery. Uh, If you go to the tasting rooms at KB Winery, my wife and I, we went and saw a show there at the KB stage, and we did a tasting, and it's a beautiful location. But it's a very different feeling when you go to KB Winery. Everyone is dressed a little nicer. It's quiet with jazz music playing in the background. It smells of wine and cheese. And some of us pretend to know what the guy is talking about when he says, this one has hints of citrus and nuts. We kind of just nod our head like, yeah, I taste the nuts. I taste the citrus. Yeah. But we have no idea. Red wine tastes like red wine. I'm sorry. And uh, it's a place for a quiet getaway with someone. It's got a different feeling, doesn't it? Now, what you experience when you walk into a place is the culture of the place. You experience the culture. And it's the thing that you experience before someone has to describe it to you. And did you know that each church has a culture? Each church has a feeling, something that you walk into, and nobody has to tell you what the culture is. It's what you experience when you walk through the doors. I've been so blessed in the last year as as new people have come to our church. They look at me and they tell me, Pastor, I have not been to such a welcoming church before. That the people here are truly warm and welcoming, and they remember my name, and they shake my hand, and they ask me how they're doing. I feel so welcomed when I'm in this place. We have a very hospitable, welcoming church. It's part of our culture. It's part of who we are. I've also had people tell us what a generous church that we have. If you were to attend our council meetings, our council, when it comes to, to, to giving money to help people, it's like there's, just, there's no stoplight. They're just like, yes, let's help. Yes, let's help. And we have a very generous council, a very generous church that just want to help people meet some needs. And, and I want you to think back to every experience you've had in a church. And maybe this is your first church experience, and that's awesome. Welcome. I'm glad that you're here. But ask yourself, and and the different churches that you've been to, the different church cultures that you've walked into, ask yourself, was it welcoming? Did you know where to go, or did you know where to find the bathrooms? Did people help you or say hello? Did you sing hymns while you were there, or was was there a rock band on stage? All of this describes a culture or what you experience when you walk into the room. So what's the point? What What am I talking about this for? The point is this. The point is is that you can absolutely love the vision statement of a church, or you can absolutely agree with the statement of faith that's posted on their website. But if the culture is bad, you probably are not going to stay at that church for very long. 
right? If the culture is bad and it's not welcoming and they aren't modeling what Jesus describes the church to be in the Bible, then we're probably not going to stick around for very long. Why are we talking about this? Because when it comes to being the body of Christ, healthy church culture is more important than a stated vision or a mission. Our church has a vision to saturate desert places with the presence of God. It's a good vision. It's a good mission. In fact, every church should have the same mission and vision because it all comes from the Great Commission in Matthew 28, doesn't it? Where Jesus says to his followers, he says, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. See, the church has a mission to make disciples. The global church, capital C, we all have the same mission. We are to make not consumers, not believers, we are to make disciples followers of Jesus who are passionate about pursuing a life dedicated to Jesus and modeling your life after the person of Jesus. And the problem is when a church only talks about their vision but doesn't model a culture of heaven within the body of Christ. Culture is important. Church culture is important. What what you experience when you're in the church body, when you're with people who belong to Christ, it's very important. Paul thought it was very important. If you read his letters to the churches, it's, there's so much in there about how Christians should behave and how they should treat one another and how they should live in unity and how they should be self-sacrificial and loving to one another. Paul goes on and on in scripture. And in the passage that we're going to look at, Paul is writing to the church in Rome. And in the first 11 chapters of Romans, He's explaining to the Romans the foundations of the Christian faith. That all people fall short of sin. Christ died to forgive sin. We're made right with God through faith. He's saying in the first 11 chapters, this is what we believe. This is what to believe. And then in chapter 12, if you read it, you can see that he makes a shift. And he begins to explain how the Christians should behave. He switches gears from a theological explanation to practical instruction. And in other words, he has just described in the first 11 chapters of Romans, he's just described the mission of Jesus. And now in chapter 12, he's talking about what church culture should look like and the relationship Christians should have with with each other and with those outside of the church. So Paul begins to say, all right, I've just given you the blueprints But now here's the hammer, here's the nails, so you can go get to work. And this is what he says about the behavior of Christians and the culture of the church. In Romans 12, we're going to start at verse 9. Are you with me? I'm going to read from the New Living Translation this morning. He says, don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. I really like that, Paul. Thank you. He says, hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble and keep on praying. Now, Paul goes on. He continues writing about how Christians should behave. But we're going to focus on this this morning on something that he says in verse 10 that I believe is key 
to developing a healthy church culture. One of the first things that Paul mentions, he says to take delight in honoring each other. To delight in honoring each other. This morning I want to talk about honor, about being a house of honor and how the church is called to be a house of honor, to serve one another, to take delight in serving one another and honoring one another. See, the Romans' definition of honor, he's writing to the church in Rome, and the Romans' definition of honor was something that you had when people informed you that you have earned it. What does that mean? As a Roman citizen, you were never your own judge. You'd look at yourself through the eyes of other people. There was confirmation that was required for you to determine your identity and your worth. And this is before modern-day psychology and Romans. They didn't analyze their thoughts and feelings as we do today. But a Roman wouldn't call himself a good man unless others called him a good man first. Does that make sense? You weren't worthy of honor unless somebody else confirmed that you were or said that you were. You didn't praise yourself or you didn't honor, you, you didn't honor yourself. You, you waited for other people to project that onto you. Now, can you, can you see the problem in this? Can you imagine the blatant bragging and boasting to make sure that everyone knew of your achievements? If your honor was earned by other people seeing it, then you'd want to make sure that other people see it, right? So you would brag and you would boast and you make sure you let everybody know why you are worthy of honor, that you are a man or a woman of honor. See, the typical citizen raised in Rome was very selfish. They were very prideful. Does this sound a little familiar in today's culture? I wonder if Rome, Romans would probably love Instagram, Because they would be able to show in a second all of their achievements, all the wonderful things that they're doing. Does it sound familiar? Our culture has adopted a very similar mindset that we want people to know how amazing we are. Right? We want them to know how good we are doing. So we post our highlights on Facebook and on Instagram. You know, when I think of honor, my mind immediately leaps to the commandment, honor your father and mother. And growing up, it was it was never very clear to me what honoring my parents looked like practically. I didn't know. I I didn't mean not raising my voice at them and obeying every request of theirs. Is that honoring your parents? Did it mean to praise them in public? Is that what honoring your parents looks like? Or, or was honor just an internal condition of the heart and it didn't have anything to do with public praise or anything like that? What, what did it mean to honor my parents? I didn't know. I also just watched the movie Mulan with my daughter. Anybody seen the Disney movie Mulan? Yes, I'm watching a lot of Disney movies in this season of my life. I'm, doing, I'm watching them over again, my childhood movies. And I remember them saying in this movie over and over again things like, You will never bring your family honor. Or you dishonor me, Mulan, with your actions. And yes, some people have watched Mulan recently. Okay. (laughs) From this side of the room. But, you know, Scripture's definition of honor is very different. And there's multiple meanings of the word honor. And in Luke chapter 14, there's this parable of a wedding feast. And the people coming to the wedding feast, they... In a wedding feast, it was this big rectangular table, and typically the host would sit at the head of the table, and those who were sitting closest to the host 
had the high places of honor. And so people were starting to funnel into this wedding feast, and they were starting to go and sit automatically at the places of honor. And Jesus says, don't do that. Don't just go and sit at the places of honor because if the host wants somebody else to move close, he's going to shame you and ask you to go and take a lower seat at the table. And so he says this in Luke 14, verse 10. He says, but when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored. In the presence of all the other guests. Now, the word for honor here in Luke 10 is the Greek word doxa, and it means glory or praise. And if you're familiar with the Bible, the word doxa is really a word that belongs to God alone. It's, it's a word that God, that describes God's praise or his glory, his goodness. And Jesus is saying to humble yourself so that God can exalt you or give you praise. Wait, that's backwards. We're supposed to be giving God praise, right? We're supposed to be giving God glory. We're supposed to be giving him honor. But Jesus says when you humble yourself, God actually praises you. He glorifies you. He gives you, gives you, he has you move up the table. Now, doxa belongs to God alone. So when God exalts you, it's for the purpose of giving Jesus all the glory. God gives glory to those whom he knows will return it to him. God glorifies people that he knows is going to only return it to him. They're not going to allow it to make their heads really big. They're not going to swell up with pride and think that it's their accomplishments that they're getting glory or honor. No, God glorifies the humble, those people who say, listen, I only exist. All of my all of my achievements, all of my accolades, all of the good things I am and do, they are only there because your grace and your goodness, God, on my life has given it to me. And then God, when he sees a, a person in a humble position, he glorifies them. And what does that person do? They get glorified. And they say, no, 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 God, I'm not worthy. I'm going to give it back to you. It's you, Jesus, that deserves all the praise. And God says, no, no, you are amazing. You are a humble servant. Come on, get up here. Oh, no, Lord, it's you that deserves all the praise. And, and there's this back and forth exchange where God exalts the humble. And the humble person gives it back to God because he knows that doxa, that glory, that praise is something that only God alone deserves. God glorifies the humble. He honors He honors humble people because he knows that they are the people that are going to return the glory to Jesus. That when people look at a humble person, they don't see them. They see the grace of Jesus on their life. They model a life that Jesus wants us to model. But the word that we are looking at here in Romans chapter 12, it's a different Greek word than doxa. It's the Greek word time, and it means to estimate or to fix the value. And this is the same meaning in Exodus 20 where it says, honor children, honor your father and mother. That word in Hebrew is the same meaning, to estimate or fix the value. In 1 Peter, I believe it's uh, chapter 3, verse 7, Peter, he's talking to husbands, and he says, husbands, honor time, honor your wife estimate, fix a value to them. Paul is telling the Romans 
that they need to determine how much each other is worth. Take delight in honoring each other. Determine how much each other is worth. In Exodus, God is telling his children, determine the worth of your parents. Fix a value to your parents. This is starting to sound a little dangerous, huh? Peter is telling husbands to determine the worth of your wives. Fix a value. So how do we determine the worth of people? How do we determine the worth of our parents, the worth of our spouses, the worth of each other, our brothers and sisters in Christ, if we are supposed to take delight in honoring one another, or we're supposed to fix a value to one another, how do we do that? Where does this value come from? It's interesting that Paul uses accounting terms when he talks about honoring one another. He's asking the Romans to determine what each other is worth. Now, how many of you have ever had to determine what something is worth? How many of you have had a garage sale before and you've had to go around with the colorful stickers and you go to different items and there's like hundreds of items all across the table and you've got to put 50 cents, a dollar, two dollars, five dollars. And you go around and you're determining the value of everything on the table. But then you get to something that has a little bit more sentimental value. Ooh, I've had that for a long time. A hundred dollars. And then somebody comes up and they're like, you really want $100 for this? Like, yes, I do. This is special to me. If you're going to part, see, see we, we determine in our world today, uh, we determine the, the, the price of something based on its worth. Now, I have another example for you. This little, uh, my, my wife doesn't know I took this out of our van, but uh, this right here is a piece of twine. And this is like a wire, one of those like fuzzy craft wires that's shaped like a heart. Now, I want to ask, I want to ask somebody, Cal, how much would you pay for this? A million dollars. I'm going to ask somebody else. But I'll sell it to you for a million dollars. Glenn, Glenn, how much would you pay for this? 50 cents. That's pretty generous. I mean, you probably get all this stuff for less than 50 cents at the craft store. You know, what I didn't tell you is that on our first date... My wife and I, we went on a night hike, and I took her to uh, Angel's Rest along on the Columbia River Gorge, and we were going to go stargazing on this night hike. It was our first date. I took her out to dinner, and we went to the gorge, and we step out of the car, and this little heart, it was this little wire thing shaped like a heart. It was sitting on the ground as soon as we opened up the car door, and it was just right there on the ground. And my wife was like, oh, it's a sign. <laughs> and she picked it up. She picked it up and she gave it to me. She gave it to me and we've had it hanging on the rear view mirror in our van ever since our first date. Well, obviously we've had different cars since then, but, but it's, come, it's been in the car ever since our first date. Now, now, you might pay 50 cents for this, but this is worth something to me. It has sentimental value, right? And I'm willing to pay... A little bit more for this. I don't want to part with this. In fact, I would say I don't want to sell this. I want to keep this. Unless Cal gives me a million dollars for it, then I might, <laughs> I might part with it. We'll just go to the craft store, grab some more twine, make another heart. You know, yes, yeah. It, you know, in our world, uh, the worth or the value of the object determines the cost. If it's worth more to me, I'm going to pay a higher price for it. But I am so thankful 
that in the kingdom of God, that's not how it works. It's actually the opposite. It was the price that was paid for you that determined your value. It was the cost that God himself paid with his blood on the cross that determined how much you are worth. Before Jesus went to the cross, we were all broken, filthy sinners, but because of the price that he paid, we are now righteous heirs of his kingdom. We are, the Bible says, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. We are children of the Most High God. We have immeasurable, infinite value because the most precious blood was spilt for you and I. That when God looks at each person in this room, he sees the weight. He sees the price that he paid because he loves you that much. We look across this room. We might see one or two people that we go, oh, they're not on my favorite list. If we're honest, come on, we can say this in church. I'm just being honest. I don't do that. I'm the pastor. I love all of you equally. And... You know, but, but God, God looks at every individual in this room and he thinks, I paid the highest price for that person, for that person. Every person in this room, I paid the highest price for that person. Paul isn't telling the Romans to determine each other's value based on the accomplishments or the righteous deeds of a person or how well they treat you or how good they make you feel. He is saying to determine each other's value, to fix a cost, to fix a price, fix a value based on the price that was already paid for them. Jesus, he didn't look at us and say, well, they're not worth the cost. Instead, he paid a price that gave every one of us value beyond measure. Each one of us has been created in the image of God, and each one of us has, a high, has had a high, high price paid for us. Heaven bankrupt itself for you and I. It gave everything that it had. It emptied the storehouses for you. Jesus' blood, his life, was heaven. His presence, himself, he is heaven. He, he emptied the kingdom of God for you because he loves you that much. He gave it all. See, 1 Corinthians 6.20 says this. It says, you have been bought with a price. That word price is that word for honor. It's time. You have been bought with time. Therefore, honor doxazo. Glorify God with your bodies. You have been bought with a price. You have had a value fixed to your life because of what Jesus paid for you. Therefore, with your bodies, give glory to God because you have immeasurable worth. Come on, if you came in, in here this morning thinking that you are not worth it, that God doesn't see you, that, that maybe your prayers go unheard or unnoticed, I'm here to tell you that you have immeasurable worth, that he paid the highest price for you, that he sees you, he loves you. True honor is about acknowledging the value that God has placed on an individual. Now, honor isn't about... Whether or not someone is deserving of honor, it's about whether or not you are choosing to be a person of honor. It has nothing to do with the other person. It's all on your end. And Paul is asking the Romans to outdo one another in showing honor. 
The New Living Translation, it says in Romans 12.10, to take delight in showing each other honor. And the ESV version, the ESV says to outdo one another in showing honor. But the Greek word there is the word pro-igeomai, and it means to lead or to go first. To step into that arena first. See, Paul's not saying to show each other up, outdo one another by, by, just, by, by, by showing up the other person's honor. He's not saying to show each other up as if it's a competition. Paul is saying that you need to go first. You need to lead the way. When the other person is treating you poorly, when things don't seem fair, it's your job to lead the way if you want to be a person of honor. That's what that word means, to go first, to don't wait for the other person. You have to be, you have to determine that I want to be a person of honor, so I'm going to lead the way. I'm going to be self-sacrificial. I'm going to humble myself, and I'm going to take delight in showing this person honor by going first, despite what they've done for me. Now, my wife reminded me as I was reading this message to her last night that, uh, you have been that other person before. The one that's been really hard to love. The one that has withheld an apology. The one that said something and didn't know that you hurt somebody's feeling. That We've all been that person before. We've all been on the opposite side of that before. But Paul is telling the church in Rome, listen, a healthy church culture if we want to model the kingdom of heaven here on earth, then we need to go first and show each other honor despite what the other person might be doing or saying or how they might be acting. It doesn't matter about them. You can only control yourself. So you have to determine in your heart that you are going to be a person of honor. I know it's easy to gossip. I know it's easy to complain. I know it's easy to get people on your side and to try to rally them around this other, against this other person so that they're on your team. But Paul is saying that is not what honor looks like. This morning, I got three points about honor in regards to one another here in the church. Paul is pretty specific when he talks in the books, book of when he writes letters to the churches. He he, he it's very clear to see uh, when he's talking about the relationship that Christians have with one another and the relationship that we're supposed to have with people who don't follow Jesus. And in this particular instance, he's talking to the church. He's talking about church culture. And so the first thing that I have is number one, honor acknowledges God given value. It acknowledges God-given value. In Matthew 13, 57, Jesus said, A prophet is not without honor, that's the word time, except in his hometown. And he did not do many miracles there because their lack of faith. What is Jesus talking about? Well, Jesus traveled back to his hometown, and Jesus shows up, and he's this great teacher. He's healed He's performed many miracles, and he shows up in his hometown, and his home, the people in his hometown go, hey, isn't that that carpenter's son, Jesus? We, yeah, we saw him scrape his knee like growing up. We, like, we know that kid. And they didn't recognize the value that God had placed on Jesus' life, that he was God himself. 
They didn't acknowledge his God-given value, and therefore Jesus could not do many miracles in his hometown because there was no honor. Nobody recognized the value that was placed on his life. Because the people living in Jesus' hometown didn't acknowledge his his God-given value, they missed out on God's blessing. They didn't expect the Messiah to look like Jesus. They didn't expect their answer to prayer to look like this person. How many times have, has God answered your prayer through someone that you didn't expect? Somebody who came along was being obedient to God and they were an answer to prayer. Like maybe you've asked God for more patience and then God gives you a person who really annoys you. <laughs> and you're like, God, this is not what I was talking about. And God says, you wanted me to help you with patience. I'm going to help you with patience. And it's going to come in the form of identifying the value and the worth in this person that you haven't seen before. I, a long time ago, heard this testimony of a man who had uh, esophageal cancer. And he went to this church to be prayed for. And he stepped through the doors and, you know, he, he, he traveled a long way to be, to be healed of esophageal cancer. And he stepped through the doors of the church and he went to this church's healing rooms. They had this place where they would pray over the sick. And, and they, he stepped through the door and he's expecting one of the pastors of the church to come and lay hands on him, right? And he sees that there's a prayer team and that there's people of all ages on this prayer team. And he wants somebody with authority to come. And pray over him for his esophageal cancer. But this little boy approaches him. And this little boy lays his hand on the man. And commands this cancer to leave. And, and asks Jesus to heal this man. And the man is healed. He goes back to the doctor. And the doctor checks him out. And says you've been completely healed of your cancer. And this man later on recorded a, a video about this. And, and he says that he didn't see healing coming through the prayers of this young boy. That he didn't expect God to move through, through this one individual, through this young individual. But God had an assignment for this boy and was just the person that this man needed. We are a family for a reason, church. That you are here not by accident. You are part of this church community for a reason. And every individual in here God has placed in your life. There's a purpose for them here. And we need to see the value that the person brings. The God-given worth that he's placed on their life. Most times we have this idea of exactly how God is going to answer my prayer. And you may not know it, but God may be trying to use the person maybe that you least like. God has put himself in each of his children, and we have to learn how to see the gold and others. God, in Genesis, it says that we were all made in the image of God, meaning that God placed a likeness of himself in every single one of us. This gold nugget that is sitting in every single person. And that person might grow up and leave the church and not want anything to do with God, but that gold nugget is still sitting there. That image of God is still sitting there, and they have no idea that it's there. And it's our job as the community of faith, as the body of Christ, to mine for gold, to 
dig out the gold that is in there by telling this person, this is not who you are. The way that you're living, the what you're doing, how you're acting, this is not who you are. You have gold inside of you. You have worth. You have value inside of you. And so I'm going to keep coming, and I'm going to keep encouraging, and I'm going to keep telling you truth so that you discover who God has made you to be, that there is a likeness of him inside of you. And it's our job as the church to mine for gold and to find the good and to find that image bearing likeness of God in every single individual. Because if we don't, who will? If the church isn't the place that people can go to discover who they really are in Christ, then where can they turn? Where can they go? But it's our job to find God-given value in every single individual. The second thing about honor is that honor restores. There's this old definition of restoration that's to return a king to his throne. I love that image. And this is a beautiful picture of what it looks like to honor one another in the church. Because scripture says that we are a royal priesthood. We're heirs to the kingdom of God. We are children of the king, of the most high king, meaning that we have inherited eternal life. We have inherited the things of heaven. We are heirs of heaven. We are children of God. And a vast majority of the church has adopted this unhealthy method when dealing with people who fall or who fail. I've seen it over and over again. When a person fails, either morally or they offend someone, the church often pushes them away and says, well, you can no longer be a part of this family because you failed. You fell. But is that what Jesus did to Peter when he failed Christ? When Peter denied Jesus three times and said that he didn't know who Jesus was, he denied Jesus three times, and Jesus didn't disregard Peter and say, well, now all that stuff I said about you being the rock that I'm going to build my church on, I guess it's not true. All that gold that I saw in you and all that time that we spent together and I was mining out that gold from you, Peter, I guess it's just gone to waste. You failed. Jesus didn't do that. What did he do? He took, Peter, he took Peter on the shore, and he shared a meal with him, and he restored Peter back to his original position. He said, Peter, do you love me? Peter said, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And he said, then feed my sheep. Peter, let me ask you again. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I do. Then feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know, then feed my sheep. Jesus restored Peter back to his original position. He put Peter back on his throne, not on the throne, but he he reminded Peter of who he was, that you are my child, that you are, you have inherited the kingdom, Peter. I'm going to continue to build my church on you. And he restored, he restored Peter back to his original position. Now, let me clarify by saying that there there's healthy boundaries that we're to keep with people when they fail that if a person is in a leadership position it's probably not wise to allow them to continue in their role however the picture that jesus gives us is to surround each other with support when we fail we're here to lift each other up and restore each other back to god's original design for our lives and the last thing is this and this might sound Maybe confusing at first, but the third thing is that honor confronts, but let me add this if you're taking notes, honor confronts with restoration as its end goal. That honor confronts knowing that restoration is the end goal. That relationship 
is the end goal. It's not to say that I'm right and you're wrong, not to shame somebody, but honor. And a person of honor will confront another individual with the, the desire to restore the relationship, to bring them back. Not everyone chooses to be a person of honor. So what do you do when you're being wronged by another person? How do we honor one another in the midst of conflict? As I mentioned before, Genesis 126 says that we've all been created in the image of God. And so regardless of the way a person is choosing to act, their true identity is not found in what they do, but who they belong to, whose they are. God has created all of us to function like himself and to look ultimately like Jesus. And so when a person fails, we have to remember that it's because they've forgotten who God has called them to be. They have forgotten who God has created them to be. And so confronting someone with honor is reminding them of who God has made them to be and allowing God to be just. But we love to play the judge, don't we? We love to, to sentence people. We're often quick to judge someone. And there's consequences for our sin. And when you're wronged, that person is going to one day suffer those consequences. But it's not you who's going to judge them. It's God. So confronting a follower of Jesus is different from confronting a non-believer or someone who's not following Jesus. When you confront someone who's not following Jesus, who wronged you, it's wise to seek wisdom from the Holy Spirit because this might be an opportunity to display the love and the grace that Jesus has for their life. But the Bible is clear what we should do when we confront another follower of Jesus, somebody who's in the family, who's in the faith. In Matthew 18, it says this, If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. A lot of us skip this step. The next thing is, if they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. This is often the first thing that we do. We go and we find two other people that we can complain to. Oh, this, did, you see, did you hear what this other person did or what they said, how they treated me? And we complain and we try to rally people against them and we skip the most important step to go talk to them. Just the two of you. Now, this isn't a green light to abruptly approach everyone who hurts our feelings. And the picture here, though, is that you first give an opportunity to restore your relationship with one another before bringing one else into it. And as I mentioned before, we have this tendency to be the judge and to condemn people before giving them a chance to be restored or to defend themselves or to explain why. We gossip. We tell others how they've wronged us before trying to fix the relationship. But that is not honor. And Paul is telling the church in Rome that honor, honor looks like confronting others with the intention of restoring the relationship, of wanting to fix things. Honor makes confrontation the purpose, excuse me, honor makes restoration the purpose of confrontation. Here's the bottom line, church, is that we don't have any control over how another person acts or chooses to live. And it can be frustrating because we often want to fix another person. And true change only comes from the Holy Spirit. It's not something that you can do. It's not something that you can say that's going to change, them, change their mind or change their heart. True change only comes 
from the Holy Spirit. And we've got to get out of the way and allow him to do his job. He's in the business of restoration. In fact, the first thing that we should do is pray for each other. Is to honor one another by praying for each other's needs. By praying for the success and for God to bless another person's life. Sometimes that's hard. Especially if you're a competitive individual like myself. And you see God blessing somebody else's life. There's this jealousy sometimes that arises in me. I don't know about you. But God wants us to direct our prayer to their, to their, to, for, for God to, to bless them, to give them favor, to make them prosper. I want to remind you, church, as we stand together and close, go ahead and stand with me, church. Honor, honor is not dependent on whether or not a person is worthy of honor, but it depends on whether you choose to be a person of honor. Honor sees the greatness in all people, and honor restores people back to that greatness. I want to take a moment to allow the Lord to spend just a few moments maybe healing some brokenness and in some hearts here this morning. I don't know what your story is or what your history maybe with people in the church is or, or other relationships outside of the church, but if there is relationship wounds that you're carrying, if there's bitterness, if there's, ask the Lord to search your heart right now and reveal if there's any of that in you. Sometimes it goes unnoticed. Sometimes we don't see it. We act like everything is fine, but sometimes the Lord will reveal to us that there's some hurt that needs some healing. Just close your eyes right now and say this prayer. Search me, God. Test me. And know my anxious thoughts. Search us, God. Father, I pray for every person in this room who is maybe carrying a wound from a relationship. And, and God, I, I ask that you would be the judge. That you would let them know that, that you are taking care of it. But Father, I pray that we would all recognize that you have immeasurable value. You have placed immeasurable value on every individual that you've created. You love every single one of us. You call this all your child. Father, I know it's hard, but I pray that we can put into practice what Paul talks about to the Romans, that we would go first, that we would lead the way. No matter how hard, how humbling, how sacrificial it might be. Father, help us go first. Help us lead the way. Help us to honor one another by finding that value in them, by fixing a value on them based on the price that you paid. Help us to restore relationships well and to confront others bravely but with the purpose of restoration. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your presence in this place. In your name, amen.